0: welcome back to the podcast on binding the bible this is episode 103 revelation self-imploding destruction and in this episode we plan to finish revelation chapter 17 by looking at verses 9 through 18 and while there is a lot of discussion about a global one world government or things of that sort that tend to occupy the minds and hearts of dispensationalists and tend to get all the attention when the book of revelation is discussed we're going to skip right over that because i don't actually think that's what john is talking about in chapter 17 instead i want to highlight a few sections that you have seen and heard of before through the book of revelation but are really the thrust of what john is again doing and so this may Um, be an important episode for you to listen to i'm eager for us to get into chapter 18 as i'm sure you can tell by listening to past episodes but i just wanted to dive right in and talk through a few things about what john is really talking about here and why it matters for us and so i'm excited to get into it let's just dive right in To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 17 verses 9 through 18. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth. But it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. They are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages and the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire for God has put it into the hearts, into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, as I shared in the introduction, we, we get a little bit of uh, a picture of this potentially depending upon the theological um, and or interpretive grid with which you read the book of Revelation. But I want to back up for just a second and to remind you, number one, I, I don't think reading this with a dispensationalist mindset is the best idea. Um, America tends to get itself placed front and center in dispensationalist minds, and apparently all of the wicked nations and fallen broken kingdoms and systems are who just happen to be America's enemies um, politically or nationally, which I think is a terrible way to read the book of Revelation. And I've talked enough about this not to belabor the point, but I want us to focus in on several things that John brings up, which will keep us heart in mind. What is he actually talking about here? And the first one is I want you to notice that John calls um, for a mind with wisdom. This is the same terminology John used in chapter 13 when trying to help his readers identify who the beast was. And we found out that this calls for wisdom – The man's number is 666, and we used this Hebrew terminology of gematria to figure out that we are basically talking about Nero, who is this one who received a mortal wound. People thought he was dead, but there was this idea that Nero was going to return. And so Nero in the first century context was in fact the beast. This wasn't some prediction of the future. This was someone who actually lived. And here we have something really similar going on because John says this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Well, may, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but Rome was often known as the city of seven hills. Uh, Rome was built on these seven uh, mountaintop plateau type ideas. J- John's simply describing this for us. He's describing Rome As the city of seven hills, which are what he says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And we talked about this in the last episode is that the political and military strength of the empire is what supports the economic advancement and economic prosperity of the empire. Those two realities working in tandem – The image that John is giving us from a heavenly apocalyptic perspective to describe a nation's powerful military might and the economic prosperity that is freely distributed to all of its citizens as a result of that military might, that reality is depicted in John's vision as a woman, a prostitute, riding on the back of a beast. Now, again, it's important to remember in the book of Revelation, John's apocalyptic images, some of them are beautiful, some of them are glorious, and some of them are disgusting and frightening. They are pictures of actual reality. Reality, as we see it, as we experience it, John is saying from a heavenly perspective, because of the things that are going on under the surface that may not be readily available to the naked eye, you need to know, as followers of the Lamb who was slain, this is what the realities actually are from God's perspective. And so when you drop down to verse 14, it says that these kings, right? These first, there's, there's five of them have fallen. There's one who's not yet come. John is embodying here for us the fact that this empire is a past, present, and a future reality all the time. And I think it's safe to say, as we've pointed out numerous times on the podcast, that Rome is simply at this moment, the most current embodiment of Babylon, but this embodiment is never a one and done thing. It wasn't one and done with with the, the people in Babel. It wasn't one and done with the actual nation of Babylon. It wasn't one and done with Assyria. It wasn't one and done with Persia, with Greece, with Rome, for Germany, from Russia, from the United States, whoever, it's a past, present and future reality all the time. And these kings that side with this woman are doing so because they stand to gain economically from the advantages that take place in these various kingdoms. And so what John is describing here is something that according to verse 15, he tells us that the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, remember all the way back in verse two of Revelation 17, I know it's been a couple of weeks, but John says, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And so you have this image, right? You're seated on water and then you have this beast and this woman. What on earth? Well, it's really great for you and for me that John just straight up tells us what the waters mean. And the waters are a reference to the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. This is John's fourfold description of the nations. It's his fourfold description, the four corners of the earth. It's John's way in Revelation of describing all the peoples of the world. It's the same group of people that the lamb who was slain died and shed his blood to create a kingdom out of. So what you have in Revelation 17, again, is this huge picture of a fight over Who's going to rule the peoples? Who's going to draw the attention of the peoples? Who's going to um, show the peoples that their way of ruling is better than the other way? The peoples are always the focus. And so at the end of the first paragraph in the section I just read, John tells us that these kings will make themselves of one mind with the beast they will see his ways, his strength, his power, the allure of the political and military strength and power. He will draw these rulers in. Again, we're talking about rulers. We're talking about kings. These are the themes that the Bible wants to talk about nonstop. And Jesus has made us into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Like we are also kings. And so the way the church lives in the world – Is a significant factor. It's a significant matter. And in verse 14, John tells us that these kings are going to be of one mind um, in verse 13 of Revelation 17, and they are going to hand over their power and authority to the beast. Now, we know the way the beast rules with power and authority and great rule. We've looked at this several times, particularly in chapter 13, but we see the way the lamb chooses to exercise his power and authority and great rule from the throne. How does the lamb do it? By self-sacrificially dying for his enemies. How does the beast do it? By pompously and arrogantly destroying his enemies, by shedding their blood by making sure that those who want to follow him get in on the winning side who are winners, who are victorious, who are always successful and are never, you know, nobody can ever mess with them. But John says, and I need need us to make sure we don't miss this, is that they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, this is very interesting because Jesus now is being elevated. The lamb is being elevated as the Lord of lords and king of kings against who? Against these other kings, against these worldly leaders, worldly rulers who seek to do their own bidding and why, like, what is the benefit of the fact that he will conquer them? And what is the benefit of those of, of the fact that those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful? Here's the deal. We've looked before at this idea of conquer to overcome, to be victorious, It's the same word used in Revelation 5 to describe what the lamb has done in dying for his enemies and then being raised from the dead. This is what conquering means in the book of Revelation. And those who are with him, the saints, if you will, are called, chosen, and faithful. Well, this is again being faithful to the pattern of the Christ that when we self-sacrificially die and, and, and are willing to lay down our lives for our enemies, we receive the same fate, resurrection and vindication, that the lamb himself did. And so right here in the center, John is explaining about what it's going to be like in the end. John's not offering us a one-to-one prediction of a time where you and I are supposed to look at our maps and figure out the 10 future kings from some future nations who are going to all pull together and to create this one world government that's going to take over the world as you and I know it. I grew up listening to that stuff. It's pulled from a literalistic reading of Revelation 17. It's not consistent with the entire rest of the book of Revelation. So it would be incredibly unfortunate for you or for me to make it mean that in this context. Because the last verse of the section I read, which is the last verse of the chapter, John says, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, it's the great city. It's Babylon, or in this case, Rome. And so what John's inviting us to do is to contrast this woman, this prostitute, this great city, and the imperial kings who give their power and authority to the beast, to contrast that with the other woman in Revelation, the bride, the wife of the lamb, the new Jerusalem, who conquers alongside the lamb, in a very different way than the beast and its worldly kingdoms. This is why in the current moment, I'm getting increasingly frustrated by Christian organizations, sometimes even churches, and at the very least, individual Christians, who are siding in their various political leanings regarding the coronavirus pandemic and trying to identify and trying to decide that whether you enforce mask wearing or whether you don't, or whether you are in a state where the governor shuts down your, your ability to gather as churches, that people are describing these realities as if this is like a battle of darkness versus light, the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. And what's really scary and what's really Unfortunate, almost seems too weak of a word, but is this idea that somehow, um, you know, the, the church is facing persecution because we're not being allowed to gather for worship in numbers that exceed, you know, too great a, a percentage. I'm afraid that many Christians who take that line do not understand what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is not church attendance. The kingdom of God is not something that a government can legislate against. It is an impossibility. The fact that Jesus's kingdom will never end, the fact that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world, means that no opposition ever can come against the actual kingdom of God and be victorious in any way, shape, or form. How do I know that? Because death itself is powerless to stop the coming kingdom of Jesus. In fact, death itself was of the king, was the means by which he brought his kingdom into existence. So when the church freaks out, And tries to decide that unfair government regulations are a sign of their persecution if they buy into that narrative and attempt to, quote unquote, go to war or fight or to use Revelation's word, try to conquer their enemies the same way the beast does, then the church has already lost the war because we do not fight battles the same way the world does. We do not fight battles the way the beast does. The beast says the way to get things done in a democracy is to push strong and to outvote and to get your Supreme Court justices in the right position. I I understand all of those arguments. I just don't buy them. They don't work. People are freaking out. And saying that it is, you know, ungodly for the government to tell churches they can't gather, but people can go to shopping malls. And I don't know why people are freaking out about that. Because number one, we made the decision as people that the way we were going to be followers of the lamb was by gathering in church buildings in large numbers. That's not anywhere written in the Bible. That's not told to us anywhere by Jesus himself. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad idea to do that. What it does mean is that that is not what it means to be faithful citizens of the lamb. In fact, we can be filled with the spirit and love have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control pouring out of us as we love our neighbors, as we care for those less fortunate than ourselves, as we pray for our enemies, as we speak truth, goodness, and kindness into the lives of people who don't want us around. We can do all of those things and there is no law anywhere on the planet that can prevent us from doing those things. And so it's increasingly discouraging to me to listen to people have such a wrongful attitude toward what is taking place. If I read the book of Revelation the way I think it's meant to be read, this doesn't come across to me as a surprise that any government of any nation would ever in any way restrict freedoms that Christians have. Why does that surprise me? Why do I get upset by that? Why do I try to fight them with the same game that they're trying to fight me? What makes me so sure that my life as a Christian has been handed to me on a silver platter and that I will in no way, shape or form ever receive opposition for being a Christian. You know, I think what's happening in this coronavirus pandemic is it is exposing a lot of weak views of the church and weak views of the kingdom that are held by thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians. It's exposing the weak veneer that is the Christianity of many people. And I am not eager necessarily to see just how many Christians in this country are no longer really going to stand true to the faith because they can't handle the, uh, (laughs) the difficulty of it. But I will say, when Jesus says that he will pull back the veil, which is what Revelation is, And he will reveal things that are, you know, in hidden places. And he will proclaim on the housetops what people whisper in dark rooms. I think he's doing that. I think he is exposing the weakness and the flimsiness of what oftentimes poses as Christianity in our country. And for that, I'm grateful. Because, I mean, my goodness... We've never experienced anything where somebody is going to stand in our way and watching people um, lose their sanity over um, governors making recommendations or laws or you know, passing legislation that says we can't gather. That's a real thing. But it's only real in the sense that Revelation describes it as being real. We ought to expect this. And yet what we see happen in the book of Revelation itself is we watch that this kind of attitude, this kind of war, this kind of gathering together and bolstering up strength and pushing your weight around, this isn't actually going to work in the real world. Verse 17, which is kind of where I got the title of my um, podcast episode here, says that the ten horns that you saw, they, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. I want you to notice the way that verse 17 describes how God carries out his purposes. His judgment occurs when these kings desire to hand their royal power over to the beast results in their own destruction. It's the self-imploding nature of fallen systems. What you have here are these kings who are going to, again, for their royal power, for their royal authority, will eventually find themselves eager for such power and turn on the economic system that is not upholding them the way they feel it should. And this happens all of the time throughout the biblical story, and it's quite fun to watch. We've seen it happen with Pharaoh and his army. Pharaoh's arrogance, Pharaoh's rage, Pharaoh's determination to be the governing Lord over the enslaved Israelites led him to his own death. His greed, when he realized that he lost himself some slaves rose up, got his chariots, got his army and his determination to get them back as his slaves drove him right into the heart of the Red Sea and there he lost his life. Goliath picks a fight with the, with the um, Israelites and his own belief that his strength alone was going to win the battle for the Philistines um, invited a fight. And when one came to him, He was killed in the middle of it. We see this pattern happening a lot. We see fools who pursue ends that they believe will lead to life. And according to the book of Proverbs, in the end, their way is death. Death itself, darkness itself is self-perpetuating. Death begets death. Darkness begets darkness. You watch this on films or in famous mythical stories where one lord i mean i'm thinking harry potter right or um sauron from the lord of the rings but you know you've got voldemort and harry potter and all of those who side with this wicked l- ruler this dark lord in the end find that they are terrified of him and find that if they cross him in the wrong way he will kill them because his kingdom is built on death. It's built on darkness. There is no flourishing there for those that serve this type of a king. The beast is the same. And in Revelation 17, John is describing for us the fall of this type of system that sets itself up. We're going to get to the beast himself and look at what happens to him, but it's all the structures that this beast sets up, these economic structures, which we'll look at in Revelation 18, which is a more thorough examination of why it is that this woman is facing so much difficulty. John is saying, look, you've got the dragon. He then is, a, you know, operates the beast as his own puppet. And then this beast has this false prophet and this woman who do his bidding. Well, now in Revelation 17, 18, 19 and 20, John's going to, in reverse order, show us how each of those systems and those um, ways of life unfold in descending order. Destruction will come to each of those principles, not just because God will snap his fingers one day and say, ah, you're done. It's over for you. No, I think John's giving us a clue in chapter 17, verse 17, that they're going to hand their royal power over to the beast and they're going to destroy the woman. They're going to destroy the own ec- their own economic prosperity that results, uh, that comes as a result of their union with the beast. You get in bed if you will, with the wrong system of power. And that version of power will come back to bite you in the end. This is the way the Bible speaks of God's judgment. We've looked at this before. And I think John is simply holding it out for us, not for us to imagine who these kings are, where this fallen thing is going to be, this is happening all the time. People are making war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. How? The same way the Lamb conquered the beast. The same way the Lamb conquered the dragon. The same way the Lamb invites his followers to be faithful to this ver- view of conquering. The same way every address to all seven churches exhorted them to conquer the same way the lamb did. And so when John tells us that they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them, we cannot imagine that the lamb conquered people once in one way, but when he comes back, it's going to be a very different way. No, that's not what John is telling us. John is saying that the lamb and his followers will continue to conquer the beast and any kings who align themselves with that beast in the exact same way that the lamb already conquered them once before that 's the message for us, and the reason it 's a hopeful message is because it is a life perpetuating kingdom. It is a life giving kingdom it is one where the, the the offer of life and joy and love and hope is so multifaceted and will grow with such um, at a such such a rapid rate that nobody will be able to stop it. Death, on the other hand, is a very different picture. And John wants us to see that despite a world sometimes where an economy is booming or you've got great military strength and military power, these are realities that exist in all sorts of kingdoms. But John wants us to know what that actually is, is a deception. That doesn't mean that you and I can't be thankful to our Lord for the economic prosperity that we experience in our country. What he wants us to understand and what he will show us very clearly in chapter 18 is that when that becomes a problem is when it overlooks or abuses or oppresses real human beings in order to obtain the kinds of strength, power, money, wealth, you name it, um, that is oftentimes in the minds of many people trading one for the other. And in the way that the Lord operates in his kingdom, that is never a fair trade-off. And there will be judgment. There will be self-implosion. There will be destruction coming from the inside. That's because this is the way that kingdom is built. And it is certainly not, One that you and I want to be a part of. And so that's what it means to testify to the lamb. And that's what it means to look for every people, tribe, language, nation. Here John describes them as peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. It's the same idea. It's this fourfold description of the world and the way they operate. The world is always watching. The world wants to know when it looks at Christians, are they operating and working their their lives out from a different set of principles, or do they get caught up in the same tit for tat minutia that the rest of the world gets bogged down in? I'm afraid right now that many people in the in churches are demonstrating to the rest of the world um, that we play the same tit for tat game that the government does. I don't think that that's what Jesus has in mind, and so. I know as a a pastor of a church myself, we're taking this very seriously. We want to protect people's lives, which we believe is a faithful expression of love for neighbor. We believe people made in the image of God need to be protected at all costs. I am more than willing to have foggy glasses while I have my mask on in order to communicate to my neighbor, I'm concerned about your health. People like to make big deal about whether this is real and whether it isn't, and I'm not really sure where all of that comes from because to me, it's an incredibly small, quote-unquote, sacrifice to make um, to put myself out just a little bit for the benefit of somebody else. And the moment I decide that my Christianity, my Christian life is stopped Because a governor may threaten to prevent me from gathering for worship, then I need to go back to the drawing board and I need to ask, what on earth is it that I believe I am called to do and to be as a Christian in the first place? Because once again, while I'm not eager for this to be revealed, I am thankful that Jesus is choosing to do it is to show us as Christians in this country or any country, perhaps how shallow and feeble our understanding of the Christian faith is if we choose to reduce it to what we do for one hour on a Sunday in a building and I don't say this lightly this is not an easy topic to address but um, I think it's one that is worth bringing up um, at least on a somewhat regular basis so that is all the time I have for this week. Um, thankful for uh, for all of you listeners. I hope you all had a fantastic Thanksgiving. You probably noticed I did not release an episode on Thanksgiving. I, th- I thought about it, and actually, the company that I produced these podcasts through was having some technical difficulties from a third party resource, and I wasn't even able to record a message anyway. So I took that as a a reason to take a break, to enjoy several days with my family and not thinking much about the podcast. But we're back now, and It's good to be with you again. So feel free to reach me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, concerns, uh, feedback, I'd love to hear from you. I'm on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram at the Unbinding the Bible podcast. Thank you so much for the several of you who continue to support this podcast on a monthly basis. That is tremendously helpful to me to purchase resources just to keep going with this. And um, again, would love to hear from you if you've got any thoughts um, or if you also would like to become a monthly supporter, 99 cents, $4.99, $9.99, I would love it. And you can find a link in the show notes of this episode or any of the episodes where you can go to support me in that way. I hope you have a fantastic week. Happy December, happy Advent, and I will talk to you next time.